Audi. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hi, and welcome to the Big Travel Podcast with me, your host, Lisa Francesca Nand. Thank you so much for your continued support. We now have listeners in over 93 countries worldwide, thanks to you. And keep hitting high spots in iTunes, places and travel charts all around the world. That is thanks to you. Yes, you for listening. Thank you. It is very much appreciated. Now, I've been trying to get today's guest on ever since I started to notice him crop up more and more on Twitter and on the news and on the radio a few months back, offering what seems to like a very studied view on Brexit, which is something I feel we all need right now. To our international audience and to anyone in the UK uh, who's been living under a rock, Brexit is Britain's supposed leaving of the EU, which is due to happen in March, presuming nothing happens to stop it. I've got a feeling we're going to be hearing a lot more from this guest, so I'm so pleased to have nabbed him for the big travel podcast. Here he is. Femi Oluwole is a spokesperson for Our Future, Our Choice, a group of young people campaigning to stop Brexit. He's gone head-to-head with controversial figures such as Nigel Farage and Katie Hopkins, coming out firmly on top, and it's only a matter of time before they invite him onto Question Time. The son of Nigerian doctors, he grew up in the northeast of England and developed a passion for human rights when studying law in Brussels and Vienna. I do have a feeling we're going to hear much, much more of Femi Oluwole, whatever happens with Brexit. So I am delighted to welcome him on the Big Travel Podcast. You're the spokesperson for Our Future, Our Choice campaign, which aims to represent young people who believe Brexit is going to be a disaster. And at the moment, you're a very, very busy man because Brexit is turning out so far to be a disaster and it's imminent. It's only a few months away from this, if it goes ahead. You're you're a busy guy. Tell me what you've been up to. Basically, I spend my life on megabuses going around the country. I don't really sleep anymore. And I see all the places in the country that I, I mean, I've been to Northern Ireland, which is the, fir- the first time I did, went there a couple of weeks ago. That was fun, realising that we're screwing up an entire nation. When you're there, looking at the border mm. and looking, how, how do you think it will affect Ireland? Well, well, we spoke to a guy who runs a farm on the border who said in no uncertain terms, Brexit happens, he stops working. He sends a lot of his sheep across the border. Now, the moment you start to have checks on that border, customs, tariffs, all that stuff, it just makes it more expensive and he, and he can barely afford to keep the farm open as it is. So it would just knock him out. Has he got a, a plan B? So I guess it'd be just the early retirement for him. People that are younger, I don't, I don't know what they'll do. And this is just one person. I mean, I, I have to say now, full disclosure, I am a very passionate Remainer. Mm. I want to remain. I, I'm, I grew up in Spain and in England. I'm mm. mixed race. I'm very liberal. And I will have people on the podcast. I have had people on the podcast, actually, who are leavers. And they seem sane people. You know, yeah. they're business yeah. people. There are some sane people out there. Mm. You've been head to head with, you know, probably the less sane people out there, like <laughs> Nigel Farage. Yeah. How is that, arguing with this man? Oh, Well, the thing is, I did my research beforehand. I know, I, so I watched him. I'm going to sound like a stalker now. I watched him for months, uh, figured out how he argues, what sort of stuff he says. And so I started calling him up. And I got him to admit just basically all the things that he said during the referendum that weren't true. I got him to admit live on air that EU members can control immigration. The UK simply chose not to. 
uh, which goes against everything that he said during the referendum in 2016. So it was fun. His thing is he likes to make it look like the other person has lost control, whereas I have an ability to annoy people. So I made him lose control, which is fun for me. I saw that online, and you did make him lose yeah. control. He was he wasn't in control of the situation, which was nice to see. It's my favorite. All thing the to right do. right wing press after that, mm. like the Express, were mm. like, oh, anti Brexit mm. campaigner gets slammed. Yeah, by yeah, yeah. Uh, it's, it's, it's always rubbish. it's always uh, Remainer gets destroyed by XXXXX. It's fun. <laughs> did you do you feel any nerves going up against such a, a, a well known politician? A little bit of nerves, but given that I know concretely that having studied EU law, I know this guy has deceived my entire country on this vital issue. And so I know that the facts are on my side. So I'm confident when I do that. You're a young guy. I mean, mm. I know 28 is actually quite grown up. It's not really a young guy. But when I think that you were born in 1990, I mean, I was <laughs> doing drugs in 1990. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. When you were being born, I was out partying and doing drugs in the clubs in Brighton. Just soft drugs, I should say, okay. for any police. <laughs> good to know, good to know. <laughs> or anyone who might employ me in the future. I'm sure it's way out my system. It was a long time ago. But you are comparatively young. How, mm. did, you, how did you get into this whole Brexit campaigning? Oh, well, I studied law and I and I specialise in, in EU law and I saw that David Cameron just wasn't giving us the facts that we needed to make this decision. He spent like five months talking about how we needed the single market, didn't bother to once explain what the single market is. I mean, I, I can explain it quite simply. Imagine if you want to sell stuff to 28 different countries, but they have 28 different sets of rules. You'd have to make 28 different versions of the same product. The EU says, let's make rules together, only to make one version. You can sell your stuff a lot cheaper. Products in supermarkets get cheaper. Boom. Life better. Now, I just explained the single market in 30 seconds. He had five months. Didn't do it once. He had Nigel Farage saying that the EU forces us to let migrants come here, live off benefits and clog up the NHS. Whereas, in fact, the EU has rules specifically against that. And so the UK government simply chose not to enforce those rules. But obviously, David Cameron was never going to say, oh, I hear your concerns about immigration. It's because I haven't been doing my job. So I had to get involved just out of basic patriotic duty. And so I started campaigning. Why do you think people were convinced by Nigel and other people into voting to leave the EU? They keep talking about this thing called the political class and the elites. And people who voted to leave tend to be in the less rich areas of the country. And they've been told for decades that if you vote this way, it'll make your life better. You'll be richer. Things will get better. And nothing ever changes. And so when people on the Remain side said, if you guys vote for Brexit, it'll make your lives a hell of a lot worse. Of course, they didn't believe them. But the fact is, it's the areas in this country that voted heavily, most heavily to leave that will be the worst affected by Brexit. I mean, I was born in Darlington. I'm, I'm a Northeastern boy at heart. And across the Northeast, there are 27,000 jobs that are based on the fact that there is a Nissan factory in Sunderland. And that factory, 75% of the cars they make go to the rest of the EU. Now, the reason why that factory is there, the reason why the Japanese chose the UK is because they've always seen the UK as, as a way of getting their products to the rest of Europe. Now, that's because any product that's made in the UK is automatically legal across Europe. That's what being in the single market means. So if we leave the single market, why would Japan, why would Nissan have a factory in a place knowing that 75% of the cars that are made there go through a completely different jurisdiction? Those jobs, those 27,000 jobs in areas that are most deprived in this country, places that voted for Brexit because they wanted things to get better, are now at risk. That is completely unacceptable. There's also this fictional idea, fictional in a certain way, of, the, of say, London being this big centre for the metropolitan yeah, elite. elite yeah. Most people from London are immigrants, whether they're immigrants mm. from people from 
inside the UK, myself, working class family, mixed mm. race family, come here. All my friends are the same. You know, we're all, we've all come from somewhere else. Most of us are from the north, mm. but people will automatically congregate in the capital because yeah. they... That's where uh, the jobs are. That's where the jobs are. Exactly. Mm. So there's this whole myth in a way that we're all sort of here living it up, having a great old time and laughing at the regions when actually we're from the regions, many of us as well. Well, yeah. I mean, the reason why people come here is because here's where the jobs are. This is the place where all the all the investment, all the infrastructure goes in. The actual efforts from government to make sure that social integration between different, different races, different, different cultures actually mix, that comes here. Whereas the places outside of London, they're left to fend for themselves. Very little investment, very little efforts to make, make integration work. And that's why places like that voted for Brexit. What we actually needs to happen is that Westminster needs to actually invest in those areas to improve things outside of the M25 so that people can actually have some hope. But right now, the only thing the government's dealing with is Brexit. And that's mean actually sucking all the oxygen out of the room and taking that hope away. It is. This We've had the recent Labour conference and I've been watching what they've been coming out with every day. Mm. And actually, they're coming out with some really good policies every day. Mm. But the mainstream press is completely ignoring mm. it because all the energy is focused on Brexit. Yeah. Now, talking of London, I've got this really embarrassing confession mm. about what I did on the night of the referendum. Okay. But I want to know, what did you do on the night, night of the referendum? It was the day before my brother's graduation. And so I was in a travel in just waiting, wa watching it up until about one in the morning. And I, it looked bad. And I saw, because me personally, I knew that Brexit would be bad for the country. But I thought, all right, there's a two year period. It'll be bad when Brexit actually happens. Whereas the Remain side was saying it'll be bad immediately. So I wasn't actually expecting, because I, based on my opinions, based on what I'd studied, any real damage to happen in the short term. And so when I saw the guys on, on BBC News saying, oh, and the pound is going, quote, almost vertically down, I was like, holy crap, this is, this is actually a thing that will happen immediately. I went to bed thinking, all right, we don't know the final result. Maybe if I go to sleep and I wake up, it'll all be better. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> it was such a, a shock, I think. Mm. And I do know people that voted leave that said, you know, on social media, yeah, let's just mix it up a bit. But they, I don't think anyone genuinely thought it no. was going to happen. No. You know? This is a d direct quote from a, from a Brexit voter who we went and interviewed in the street. Do you know why I voted out? Because I genuinely thought we'd stay in. To give the government a shock yeah. almost, you yeah. know, because... Many Labour voters were not big fans of Cameron. Many mm. Tories were not big fans of Cameron. Many people across the country had very strong opinions on, on other things. What mm. I did on election night, I mm. haven't told, uh, on the, the day we found out, so the yeah. day afterwards, the day we found out, I haven't actually told anyone because it's so embarrassing, but I'm okay. going to tell you. <laughs> this is good. Okay. <laughs> well, I was in tears, you know, I'm mm. a, like I said, mixed race person. Mm. My dad was an immigrant from Fiji mm. and I grew up in Spain. I, I'm a traveler. You yeah. know, I love Europe. I love being English. I love being British, I love being European, and I love being Indian, Fiji. And I, I feel that I can be all of those yeah. things at any given time. So I was in tears, and many of my friends, you know, we were really knocked sideways mm. like this. I know leavers are going to laugh at me and think I'm pathetic, but I will have some leave people on as well. But this is genuinely how I feel. So me and my friend were meeting for a drink in London, and we were in this little sort of buzzy sort of area called Villiers Street, which is next to Charing Cross Station. Mm. And it's very close to Soho. You've got lots of, you know, good bars. There's like gay bars. There's, you know, all sorts of, you know, things that I, I enjoy doing, that sort of liberal yeah, attitude. Yeah. And the most embarrassing thing was, is that after a few drinks, there was this mixed race couple that walked down through Villiers Street. And it's like the crowd parted. It was the weirdest thing. Like, I'm mixed race. Mm. 
where I live in London. And it was like everyone, because everyone in London was pretty devastated. Most people in mm. London, the majority of London voted to remain. Yeah, yeah. And we were all crowded round this mixed race couple. They were so beautiful. And I remember thinking, I was saying to my friend Penny, I was like, should I go up and say something? This is like, what am I doing? What am I going to go up and say to them? And, you know, I think after a few drinks, I think I might have said something. It's like, wow, you're really beautiful or something. And they were like, they, they walked down Villiers Street, like they epitomized, you know, yeah. they were holding hands. Yeah. It's like, we're not going to be broken. Yeah, and yeah. this has absolutely nothing to do with <laughs> with the referendum or Europe. The mm. guy was black, probably black British. She yeah. was white, probably, you know, not yeah. from, probably not from Europe at all, apart from here in mm. Europe. And we all sort of fawned over this poor mixed race couple. If they're out there, I'd really like to apologise for drawing so much attention for you. And like all those people were sort of touching them almost as, it, as they went by. It was the most embarrassing thing. And I think it took me months to remember how embarrassing I was. <laughs> on the night that we found out about the results. But wow. I was knocked sideways, I have to say. That's impressive. <laughs> <laughs> it's really, really bad. So anyway, you've mentioned that you're from the northeast, mm. but you've got a you've got an accent yeah. that is not from the northeast. It's very mixed. Where tell me where where do you originate from? Yeah, name? my accent is what I call messed up, and that's the PG version of it. I was born in Darlington, then moved to Middlesbrough, then to Swansea, then to Dundee, then to Birmingham, then to Worcestershire, then back up to Darlington, then back down to Worcestershire, went to uni in Nottingham, uh, then uni in France, uni in Nottingham, internships in Brussels, and then in Vienna, and then back to UK, and my parents are Nigerian, and I watch way too much American TV, so my accent is just confused. I was going to say, the American, mm. is that just from the telly? Oh, it was worse when I was a kid. <laughs> uh, like, I, if you, there's a video of me when I was nine years old, straight up California. Just like this kid, where has he come from? <laughs> what was your? What were you watching? I'm thinking like the Fresh, OC Fre- or... Fresh Prince, Fresh, Fresh Prince, Prince. Fresh ah. Prince, and Keenan and Cal just basically made my tongue. <laughs> <laughs> it's lucky you only got away with like a Californian sort of <laughs> accent rather than anything sort of a bit more Fresh Princey, you know, a bit yeah, more yeah. Will Smith or something. I did actually talk a lot like Will Smith when I was a kid. It was yeah, it was good. <laughs> so you've spent a lot of time in Europe, and mm. in there's a great video that's gone viral of you. Uh, what do you call it? Is, this is Brussels. Yeah, 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 this, yeah. Is the, this Brussels is Brussels. Explains, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, Brussels, mm. which is great. You're standing in the middle of Brussels and you're going, you know, this isn't a scary place. This isn't mm. where, you know, sort of people are, you know, plotting against us, you know, and, and thinking bad stuff about us. So d- describe the describe the Brussels experience to me. So, I mean, I lived there for about two years because I was doing internships primarily in just like human rights issues. And so I've, I've lived, I mean, you have to get used to living in Brussels there. It has its issues. It has nice chips. I won't say which I prefer, UK fish and chips or, uh, or Brussels, because they are, they're really nice. It's like, imagine UK chips, but healthy. Uh, it's, it's weird. Well, I say relatively healthy on the chip scale. Until you chuck a load of mayonnaise on it, yeah. which is a local <laughs> delicacy, mm. which is amazing. I have samurai sauce, which is like a mix of uh, mayonnaise, ketchup, and like spice. It's good. So what was life like for you living in Brussels? Uh, it was good. I mean, it was very, because I, sp- I speak French as well as well as English. So you, it's, it's the real spirit of being European, because if you go to like a restaurant, any table that, that's there, there'll be like two languages spoken just interchangeably on each, on each, on each table. I mean, that spirit of we come from completely different backgrounds, but we all interact. We all understand each other's. We all, we're all trying to understand each other's cultures and each other's background. That spirit of being mixed integrationist, that is beautiful. So what were you doing there for work? So I worked as an internship in a human rights NGO that focused on Gulf rights like, um, uh, Saudi Arabia, Bahrain. And so kind of one of the things that got me involved in Brexit because I was, watching how some of the weapons that the Saudis were using in in Yemen 
and the civilians that were dying and the bo bombing of hospitals and schools using British weapons. When I look back to the UK, just like nothing was happening. Um, I was like, why aren't we doing something about it? Why aren't we stopping this? And then I saw that the EU was trying to stop us from doing that. And then Brexit happened. You've got Theresa May saying how she wants to get rid of the Human Rights Act. And I just see things getting worse and worse. The actual moral integrity of my country is under threat because of Brexit. And that's what I was, I was trying to improve things over, um, over in Brussels. And we're now taking a step back. Why do you think people are so against the Human Rights Act? I mean, yeah. it, obviously it's got its failings mm. in some way, but it, it's, it's there to protect us. Yeah. Well, people often see human rights as this thing that's just about fringe groups or, or, or minorities. They see it as just this thing designed to protect people of religion. They don't see that it's about you. It's about making sure that you're your daughter has the same rights as your son. It's about making sure that your disabled kid has a chance of getting a job. It's about making sure that if you ever have an issue with the police, that you're treated fairly. This is human rights are about you, but they're painted by the Daily Mail as just this thing for, oh, the liberal elites, they want to protect people that aren't you. No, this is about you. This is human rights are designed to protect people from their government. So arguing that we can have some British Bill of Rights, and this is the point of what, what human rights actually are. So your family are from Nigeria. What was mm. it like growing up as a young Nigerian <laughs> son in the northeast? <laughs> yeah. Uh, so my parents were, my parents were, well, my dad was actually born next to Highbury Stadium, uh, but he spent most of his life in, in Nigeria. My mum was born in Nigeria and they came over here in 88 and had me in 1990. I experienced some racism as a kid, but it never really, it never really bothered me as a kid. And you, you sort of, you're more, you're made more aware of it when you're, when you're older. When you're a kid, it's just like, oh, your hand is magic because when you turn it over, it's a different color and um, that sort of thing. But it's more just, oh, cool. I'm special, apparently. And what was your, your parents' experience like when they came over? Uh, well, your mum came over. Yeah. Your dad was born next to her. They, they, they experienced more racism than, 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 than I did because, I mean, well, they were old enough to really appreciate what was happening. But they were, they were both doctors, so they were quite privileged. So they didn't really experience what people who might live in a, a more urban environment might actually experience. You get a lot of posh, wealthy Nigerians, don't mm. you, I've noticed? Yeah, often they, they come over as, as doctors. I mean, like, like they're full of, they fill up the NHS as far as doctors. So, Well, there's another EU thing, isn't yeah, it? Yeah. That we really, you know, we really need EU doctors and health workers yeah, and so nurses. Citizens from EU countries, they make up 5% of our population, yet they make up 10% of our doctors. So as I reminded Nigel Farage recently, immigrants aren't threatening the country. They're literally keeping us alive. The jobs that you don't want to do, you mm. know, I don't know if I would have wanted to go fruit picking when yeah. I was a kid. Mind you, I did work in bars. Mm. And nowadays you go in the bars and restaurants and everything. And, and a lot of the people are, are from the EU. It's like almost like people don't want to do that anymore here well, either. I mean, it's, it's not a coincidence that in the fruit picking industry, people who pick fruit, Less than 1% are British born. Less than 1% in the UK. We always used to have the whole of East London decamping to Kent to mm. pick hops in, <laughs> yeah. the, in the olden days, didn't they? You see some beautiful photos of mm. that. Um, so you also spent time in Vienna. Mm. That city, I often say it's the prettiest city I've ever been to. I mean, it's so pretty. I mean, I'm not particularly cultured from like a historical or artistic perspective, but everything you see there is so pretty that you don't even need to explore because automatically just going, going about your day, you see amazingly beautiful stuff. The architecture is fantastic, yeah, isn't yeah. it? The culture. Did you go to the opera? I didn't. Uh, I, I went to it, but not in it. <laughs> <laughs> to see the building. Yeah, the yeah, building's yeah, very yeah, nice yeah. as well. And what was the, what were you doing there? I was actually working for the EU's fundamental rights agency. So having worked in Brussels in and around the institution, basically pushing for more human rights based to policy. I then got an, a traineeship basically promoting human rights to both the EU institutions and also to the member states to make sure that every policy that they do and, and they actually work to create more integration, how you can 
create more uh, integrated societies and social cohesion, that sort of stuff. Are you now a lawyer or is there another step to uh, no, becoming one? Or you're I, not going to be one? I'm not going to be one. I basically studied law and in September of first year, I realized I didn't want to be a lawyer because I wanted, you might be able to tell I have a bit of a hero complex. And so I, I wanted to actually like create, a, make a difference. And I didn't feel I could do that as a lawyer. So I forgot to go into policy and change the game rather than play the game. So I basically left law just soon enough so I could keep my soul. You are doing very well and you're making mm. a real name for yourself. Mm. Has this career sort of happened accidentally after your Brexit protest? When I started, it was just, I had like 20 followers on Twitter back in 2016. And I resorted to um, go- taking myself out into the bullring of the centre of Birmingham with a t-shirt I bought from Primark, wrote EU questions, just ask, because I was just desperate for people to actually get some facts because I knew they just weren't out there. And that's grown from that to like having 75,000 followers today and being on the news on a regular basis. It should not be the case that some random kid from Darlington should be able to be on the news leading the Brexit debate. But that's just a sign of the times of how bad this debate has been, how bad the national conversation has been, that someone like me is able to do that. Well, I think you're putting yourself down then. But I, I, I get what I get what you're saying is that experts, the whole expert thing has sort of exploded in our face yeah, and people yeah. don't really trust experts these days. Well, mm. I trust experts because they're bleeding experts. Mm. But uh, there's, there's a lot of people that say, oh, don't trust experts, don't trust the news, you know, especially mm. with the with the Trump thing. Yeah. It's nice to get fresh faces and different opinions on it. And it is the, like you've said yourself, you know, you are the generation that this is going to affect most. Within yeah. five years, yeah. the, the people, more people, the youth will have voted Remain. Oh, you can explain it better than me. Tell me the five years. Uh, so yeah, um, the idea was from within five years of the original referendum, due to demographic shifts, due to the fact that 34 to 45 year olds voted 52% remain, 25 to 34 was 62%, and, tw- and 18 to 24 was 75%. By 2021, and recent polls say it's actually by 2019, 20, uh, we'll have a population in this country that voted to remain. So Brexit will be directly against the will of the people before it's even completed. Do you think that what's going to happen now? You know, we've got, you know, I want this podcast to have some long, longevity. So, mm. but we're, we're at this point where there might be a general election. There might be Indie Ref 2. What mm. are they calling it? The People's, uh, people's Vote. People's vote yeah. Well, what do you think will happen now? What do you hope will happen now? Well, quite simply, there is no way to solve the Northern Irish border situation. Their entire political system is based on a disagreement over the extent to which Northern Ireland should be part of either the UK or United Ireland. Now, there's no border between Northern Ireland and the Republic of Ireland, and that sort of ha- keeps the people that want a united Ireland happy, and also officially Northern Ireland's part of the UK. Now, the issue is, if Northern Ireland leaves the rules system of the EU, then that means that products that are legal in Northern Ireland are no longer legal in the Republic of Ireland. And that means that due to the EU's need to protect its own consumers, lorries that pass between the two need to be checked. And that would create a border which goes directly against the Good Friday Agreement. The Good Friday Agreement is the agreement that was signed in 1998, which basically says, all right, you guys have been fighting for 20 years. You've lost thousands of people. Thousands of people have died. Let's have an agreement whereby we keep a happy balance between the two. No border. Now, that would go against that. The alternative is Northern Ireland stays within the rule system of the EU, and therefore the rest of the UK does, in which case the only thing that you've achieved with Brexit is that we now copy the rules of the EU, but we no longer have a say in those rules. Right now, we have a significant force in terms of influencing EU rules. 73 of the 750 members of the European Parliament are British. That gives us 10% of the voting weight, despite being one of 28 countries. You want to give that up so that we can then copy the rules of the EU without having any say? The, the main slogan behind Brexit was take back control. Brexit is resulting in us losing control. Now, given that there is no way to solve that particular problem, 
the only way out of it is to have a vote on whatever they come back with. Not in any, any arrogant way, or maybe we do have a sort of British colonial mm. arrogance, but we were the, we were at the top of the tree yeah. in Europe. We were helping, we were mm. sitting at the table, helping to make decisions and driving decisions. We weren't this little country that's being dictated to by no. Brussels, like everyone. The single market implied. was a Margaret Thatcher invention. The, the most commonly spoken language in, within the European policy is English, followed simply by, by French and German, which will likely start to take over in, in, in European policy. As far as influence, we were the most influential people. They loved the fact that we were there because of the English attitude that we brought to things. They liked that. But we're now giving up that influence. That's directly against the wishes of people who voted for Brexit. What will you do if we, if we leave the EU? If we leave the EU, I'll basically have to, I mean, my plan was always, all right, I'll, I'll come back to the country. I'll do my best to try and make sure that there's some sort of vote on Brexit. And if I fail, then I have to stop us from moving too far to the right. Because right now, I mean, first it was EU citizens, and then and then it'll be Muslims, and it'll be the the right doesn't want to stop with with Brexit. They'll just keep going further. Now I have to fight that, especially regarding human rights, because Theresa May has already said that she wants to get rid of the Human Rights Act. So my main plan is to just basically try and make sure that the country doesn't tear itself apart. Now, if people, in, especially in the Northeast, who are promised that Brexit would make things better, and if Brexit makes things worse, which it would do, for, for the reasons I've explained, they will be furious. Because they are the people who've, who've been left behind, and if they get if things get worse, I, I just don't want to. I don't want to see that. So we'll be pushing the government to try and keep things together. But I don't. I don't know what to do. But if we if we don't leave, they will be mm. furious anyway, thinking that they haven't that democracy has been disregarded in some way. I often hear the argument that a vote in the deal or a second referendum or, or a people's vote is undemocratic or it's thwarting the will of the people. Quite simply, the will of the people cannot be thwarted or undermined by a vote of the people because the people cannot undermine their own will. If we vote to reject the Brexit deal, that means the people, the will of the people is against the Brexit deal. Now, you could argue that if we vote to reject this way of doing Brexit, maybe the will of the people is still for Brexit in theory, but let's at least have a plan. Have we seen a plan? Have we seen any plan that anybody can actually get behind in the last two years? No. Now, if people want a Brexit that actually works, let's come up with one. But we don't have the time to formulate that now, or certainly not to negotiate that now. So the only logical thing is that we vote to whether or not we can, if we, whether or not we approve what's been presented with us now. If we don't accept that, then we revoke Article 50, stay in the EU, and we move on from there. In defence of Theresa May and her government, they're making a plan for something that probably doesn't have a feasible plan. No. So you can you can disagree with checkers all you like, mm. but actually there probably isn't. You know, what What you do, it's just, what no, you do, nobody the, the, knows what they're doing. The, 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 there, is, there is no way. I mean, quite simply, one of the most basic rules about economics is that you do most of your trade with countries that are close by to you. So it's always going to be in our economic interest to have the closest ties with European countries because contrary to popular belief, Brexit does not literally drag the UK out into the Atlantic. So you have two choices. You either stay close to the EU in terms of having similar rules but Brexit means you're no longer at the decision-making table. So you've lost control, but you've kept the economic benefits. Or you have this theoretical control and lose the economic benefits, but you'll end up copying those rules anyway, in which case you just, again, you lose that control. The best way to maintain British sovereignty, British control, British influence is by having that seat at the table. Well, it's certainly not boring politics mm. at the moment. And mm. you have become a politician in all, <laughs> in all but name. Have you got any plans to sort of take that further? Will I be voting for you for prime minister? Because if I have the option, mm. I will I will vote you in. I appreciate that. The, I appreciate that. I will, I will count on your vote. <laughs> yes. Um, will you give me a tour around number 10, though? Because I've always, I've always wanted to go. Oh, I'm gonna, never I, been invited. I, no, uh, to be honest, I, I'm moving number 10 to uh, probably to Birmingham. Uh, <laughs> I, I think I think 
think I'll probably have go- have my government in Birmingham because I, I don't want to live in London at all. So yeah, you're welcome to come there if you want. I'll have it right next to the bull ring. What don't you like about London? <sighs> it's too many people. It's too big. I'm a cyclist. So I want to I want to know every single road in my city. I want to be able to have want people to have a reason to want to talk to you. Whereas if there's that many people, nobody has any reason to talk to you. It's really really isolating. And also, it's too far south. I was born in Darlington. I, my first school was in Dundee. I like the cold. I, I, I'm the sort of guy who skis in swimming shorts. That's my thing. <laughs> <laughs> Have you actually been to America with that accent? Yes, but they think that I'm. A, they think I'm British, and British people think I'm American. So I guess I'm Atlantic. I guess. Where have you travelled to? A couple of quick travel questions that we move on from Brexit. Um, so have you been to Nigeria? Yes, I've been. I've been. I think three times. How uh, is it? Too hot. Like I said, I like the cold. They. Don't do cold in, in Nigeria. It's not one of the things they do, and also the wealth inequality is really not okay. As in, like ten miles outside of the center of Lagos, one of the biggest cities, you've got abject poverty. I can still vividly picture in my mind a guy crawling in the middle of the street, elbow bent the other way, begging for begging for money. And then you go to the center of La- center of Lagos. If you would think you were in Los Angeles, that's the level of wealth that we're talking. And how do people? How do the people who are in the Los Angeles side? How mm. do they regard the poor? There are several gated communities, especially as crime is an issue there, corruption is an issue there, and so I think I think it's a it's a problem at the top. Not necessarily. That's not that's not the people. It's a problem at the top. The government needs to make sure that corruption is rooted out. I mean, there's this problem. It's a problem everywhere. But given the wealth inequality, any corruption is is a, is a serious problem. What other countries have you been to? Well, tell me uh, something fabulous. I don't know. Okay, so I did Erasmus in France. Now that was the best year of my life. Firstly, because I was studying a, studying in a university Remind in France. Remind me what Erasmus is. In your third year of university, you oh, go yeah, to you, you you go to no you actually oh. study in a, you study in a French university. Ah. So I was studying in a French university for a year, and because it was an Erasmus program, a language based, it follows the trend of language based courses, which means that it's roughly eighty five percent female, which made that year the most romantically complicated year of my entire <laughs> life. Oh my god, that was a good year. As so in, you got all these chat up lines in French. <laughs> yeah, and especially is because I'm fluent in French, I still see. French, the French language is a bit of a toy because I love it. I say the worst things in French. <laughs> I'm like, I'm so much more liberal with my tongue when I'm speaking French. <laughs> I just, I come out with stuff that I would never have the con- the confidence to say in English. And yeah, so what, what happened that year? I fell in love with a French lesbian. I got cheated on by a German. <laughs> yeah, it was a, it was an interesting year. It was basically what you'd always hope the university would be. You work really hard in lessons and you go home and do absolutely nothing. Just have fun. It was basically a social year where I got immersed in French culture, got to make great friends. In- and because it was Erasmus, there's people from all across Europe. And so I got to experience that European community for the first time. That sounds amazing. Mm. That that makes me want to go back to university and actually do that. Oh, talking of uh, people, you know, d- speaking different languages. Mm. I once was chatting to this guy in Greece on a mm. press trip and he's, he was fluent in a lot of languages and I speak Spanish. Mm. And so we we're having a little chat in Spanish. Oh no, before we had a little chat in Spanish, he was saying he was having really big problems with his girlfriend. She was mm. Spanish or South American and they weren't sort of gelling and he didn't understand why she didn't get him. And then he was like, oh, you speak Spanish. So we started having a chat in Spanish. Mm. And you know what? He was a completely different yeah. person than yeah. the person he was when he spoke English. Yeah. He had this, oh, nah, get down, you know, sort of yeah. accent. I was yeah. like, well, who are you? You know, you're completely different than the person I was speaking to 30 yeah. seconds ago just because you changed your language. You're exactly right. You have a different personality when you're the English guy or when you're speaking in that in that language because the, the humor is slightly different. And so you, you sort of chime into that difference, that style of humor. One of my first jobs was head of customer services in a, in a hotel in France, basically a, a ski season. And that was again awesome. They paid for your um your ski pass, your your accommodation, your flights. And because I don't drink, 
actually made money rather than most people who lost money, which was, uh, which again, awesome. Most of my friends think I'm the craziest person they know anyway, so drinking would just make that a hell of a lot worse. When I ski, I ski in a cape, and I ski in swimming shorts, and there's videos of me having accidents, shall we say. I'm absolutely bat mental. Drink could just push you over the edge yes, if you exactly. step too far. <laughs> My last question then mm. is always about music because I think music and travel go hand in hand mm. for a lot of people. It sort of cements memories mm. and you've got more time to listen to music. And the question is, if you could choose just one song that mm. reminded you of a place in Ooh. time of travel, of a special moment in travel, what would that song be? Oh, okay. Oh, this is going to be really, really depressing. Show Me the Meaning of Being Lonely by Backstreet Boys from 2000. It was when I moved, to, just moved to, uh, Bromsgrove and, and then I had to leave, leave all my friends behind. And cause I moved, I'd moved, I lived in 14 houses by the time I was 14. So I was always saying goodbye to friends. So that, that song sort of really cut deep. <laughs> oh, the Backstreet Boys, they cut deep anyway. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Oh, God. <laughs> they're really good. They're really good. They're, they're underrated. <laughs> no, they're really good. They're definitely good. Very quickly, why, why did you have 14 homes in 14 years? Both my parents are doctors and my dad just kept basically helping hospitals basically to um, progress in his career. Thank you so much for coming on the Big Travel Podcast. I look forward to when you're Prime Minister <laughs> or what you're doing next. And also, let's see what happens and yeah. let's hope that it works out one way or the other that yeah. we're all going to be okay. Agreed. Thank you so much, Femi. I can't wait to hear what you do next with or without Brexit or the EU. In the coming weeks on the Big Travel Podcast, we have comedians Phil Nickel and Daliso Chaponda, as well as travelling author Isabel Broom. See you next week. Hi, my name is Kay Adams, and to be honest, I'm not so good with the ageing process, so I enlisted my old chum, the filter-free Cara McKenzie, to advise. Could you imagine being a porn star? The room would need to be really hot for me to strip <laughs> off. To be honest, she's not much help, but she is rather amusing. And along with some great guests, Joe Brand, Andy Oliver, Anton Dubeck, Ruth Langsford and Craig Revel Horwood, darling, we are learning how to be 60. Listen wherever you get your podcasts.